Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our Easter series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message called The Sufferings of Jesus, Part 2. Yesterday, I quoted from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. In that passage, Paul is reflecting on some of the hardships that he faced in his ministry. And as he does, he comments that he is, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now, we're instructed in our own suffering to remember the sufferings of Jesus, lest we be overwhelmed by our own suffering. Let me give an example. When the Nicene Council was called in AD 325, there were 318 Christian bishops gathered in Nicaea, which is now in the nation of Turkey. They gathered to combat a heresy that was forming in the church and to give the global church directives as to the true teaching of Christ. But consider this. Of the 318 bishops that gathered in that city, only 12 of them had not lost either an eye or a hand or did not significantly limp as a result of having been tortured for the cause of Christ. Imagine such a group of leaders, every one of them had suffered for the cause of Christ. And it's for exactly that reason that I think it's so necessary to reflect on the sufferings of Jesus. See, I think it's necessary so that we don't think, God must have abandoned me because I'm suffering. Think then that Christ has suffered far more than you ever have. Remember then that he surely understands your suffering and remember that his suffering was for your benefit. You know, there's an old poem that's called Too Tough. It begins as follows. The road is too rough, I said. Dear Lord, there are stones that hurt me so. And he said, dear child, I understand. I walked it long ago. Indeed, the more we meditate on Christ's sufferings, the more we're armed for our own suffering and the more we rejoice in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Now, yesterday, I began to speak about the sufferings of Christ. And together, we noticed that Christ did not begin his suffering at the cross, but rather, he suffered for his entire lifespan. And then we noticed that when Jesus was arrested, he suffered not the indignity of one trial, but rather of six. Yesterday, we looked at the first five trials, all the miscarriage of justice. But today, we're going to consider the sixth and final trial, the last one, when Jesus reappeared before Pilate. Pilate received Jesus back from King Herod, and Herod had abused and mocked Jesus in his court and then sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate got him back, but by then he had a plan. It was his custom to release one prisoner back to the Jews, so he's going to release Jesus. After all, his wife has had a very disturbing dream, and because of that dream, she tells him, don't be a part in this man's death. And Pilate takes note. Because he clings to the Roman gods and goddesses, he's particularly aware of signs and omens. And his wife's dream has gotten his attention, and he fears very negative spiritual consequences if he should have a part in this man's death. But by then, the religious leaders in Israel have stirred up the crowd to a frenzy, and they scream out in front of the praetorium that they want Jesus crucified. It will be mob justice. And Pilate comes to the slow realization that the decision of what to do with Jesus has been taken out of his hands. 
The last thing he needs is for the Jewish religious leaders to to write to Rome, declaring that Pilate refused to take action and crucify a man who claimed to be the king of the Jews. So Pilate's been boxed in. Omen or no omen, he knows he has no choice. And so Pilate takes Jesus and has him beaten and scourged with whips that contain bits of lead and bone that are meant to rip out flesh and expose sinew and literally make his back look like ground beef. And they take a crown of thorns with long one and a half inch sharp nail-like thorns and they ram it into the top of his head. And they beat his face and they probably break his nose and make a bloody mess of his appearance. In this utterly dehumanizing treatment, Pilate wishes to engender some form of pity in the crowd. At the very least, Jesus will look like he's not a threat to anyone. If he's a king, don't worry about it. I can have my way with him anytime I want to. And perhaps this will take the riot out of the mob and they can release Jesus after all. And so he trots out the disfigured Jesus. He announces, I found no guilt in him. But the sight of the bloodied and beaten and mutilated Jesus engenders no pity. It's like the smell of blood before sharks. It it sends the crowd into a frenzy. Finish him off, they cry, crucify him. And it's right here in the midst of this that Pilate hears something that, that makes his blood run cold. No, savaging Jesus didn't bother him. He was a battle-hardened soldier who had tortured many a victim before this. But it was this strange thing. Why did they want him dead so bad? And then, in an unguarded moment, the awful truth comes out. He made himself out to be the Son of God. And then suddenly, fear shoots through Pilate. What is this? He drags Jesus back to the praetorium. Where do you come from? No answer. Pilate says, listen to me, you won't talk? He's now panicking, hoping to intimidate Jesus. I have the power, he says, to put you to death. And now for the first time, Jesus speaks. You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And Pilate knows instinctively what that means. His soul is right now being weighed in the balance. So Pilate is done with the games. He comes back to the crowd. No, absolutely not. I release this man. But the frenzy of the priests is now evident. If you release him, they scream back. We will report to Rome that you released a man who made himself a rival king to Caesar. And the problem was that at that point in history, Pilate was having his own problems with Rome. He was himself walking through a political quagmire with Rome questioning where his loyalties actually lay. The chief priest knows this, and he will play it for all it's worth. He is Pilate right where he wants him. Pilate's now desperate. Will you have me crucify your king? And then comes the second awful truth. They shout back, we have no king but Caesar. I want to stop here for a moment because, as many of you know, there is a terrible history that has developed over these events. During the Middle Ages, it became common practice to accuse the Jewish people of being Christ killers. I mean, after all, they forced Pilate's hand. And slanderous statements were made. For during this time of trial, when Pilate wanted Jesus released, and when he washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, the crowd screamed back, his blood be upon us and on our children. And that line was used to great effect in the Spanish Inquisition, and also the Nazis made use of it in their time. Some of you will remember that this very line became contentious during the making and filming of Mel Gibson's work, The Passion of the Christ. 
Jewish groups argued that this line should be left out of the movie. It had led to far too much anti-Semitism in the past. So what should we make of this? I think and believe that most of us are revolted by anti-Semitism, and if we're not, we certainly should be. For myself, as a Christian man, I often reflect on Paul's words in Romans 9, 4-5. He writes, To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. See, what that passage tells me is that every Christian owes to the Jews an undying debt of gratitude. You know, on one of my trips to Israel, I was shown a museum, the history of the Jewish people in defending and protecting the Old Testament, many times paying for its survival with their own blood. Some of the stories show that at times, had Israel not protected the sacred writings, we would not have a Bible in our time. You know, I had tears in my eyes, and I told my Jewish non-Christian guide that I owed his race a thanks and gratefulness that I simply had no means of expressing or paying back. What could I say to him but thank you, thank you, thank you a thousand times because from you has come the faith, and because of you, I have become a worshiper of the God of Israel. Now, there is for us Gentile Christians not any room at all for anti-Semitism, but exactly the opposite. We are required to be grateful with the very thought of the Jewish people. But now to the point. What do we make of Israel's role in the crucifixion of Jesus? And the answer has everything to do with how you view the role of Israel in history. What does it mean for them to be the chosen people of God? And some of us, I think, have this all wrong. We think that Israel as the chosen people must mean that all of them are chosen unto salvation. But the Bible does not teach that. In fact, during the time of Moses, Moses believed that the vast majority of them had no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no heart that understood. Isaiah, in his day, believed that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. So what does it mean? Well, Romans 3 verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. So in some fashion, this is the answer to the question that we're asking. One of our listeners wrote, We believe that Back to the Bible Canada is at the beginning of something groundbreaking in Canada. God is and will use you in an amazing way. Well, messages like this are so encouraging and eye-opening. God is at work and the gospel is being heard across this entire country. Back to the Bible Canada programming is broadcast from Vancouver Island to Prince Edward Island on 98 facilities with some 2,652 releases of programming every week. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to promote spiritual growth and lead people into a growing and dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Find out how you can join us in this mission by visiting Back to the Bible Canada or by giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Paul says that in the history of Israel, including her rampant idolatry and unfaithfulness to God, horrible exile and suffering, and, and ultimately her rejection and willing participation in the crucifixion of Jesus, that all of that is meant to teach us so that every mouth would be stopped. That's because Israel and her history is a mirror into our own souls. We would have done exactly as Israel did if it had been us in our culture. You know, in one of Rembrandt's famous pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus, there standing at the base of the cross, a part of the group that raised Jesus on the cross, is Rembrandt's own self-portrait. Rembrandt painted himself into the picture of the crucifixion of Jesus as one who himself nailed Christ to the cross. And so when the Jews shouted, his blood be upon us and our children, they spoke on behalf of all of us. For all Gentiles as well, we willingly participated in the cruel torture of the Son of God. So here's the secret of the entire Israel story. They're no better and no worse than the rest of humanity but they are God's divinely chosen instrument to help us see into our own hearts. They are a mirror into our own souls. For what they did is exactly what we would have done had we been in their place. They are intended as a living parable, an acted-out drama that shows the human race who we are. Hate them, and we hate ourselves." but I've been distracted from the final issue. We're speaking about the sufferings of our Lord. After having been tried six times, it has taken mob justice to bring him to the cross. Bloodied and horribly beaten, suffering from blood loss, he staggers to carry his own cross to the place of execution. And in the end, he falls and is unable to rise as the Romans conscript a passerby to carry Christ's cross to the place where he will be crucified. Mark 15, 21 to 25, very simply lays out the facts. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. You know, the fact that Mark mentions the two sons of Simon is probably important. There's evidence that indicates that these two boys became believers and were well-known to the Christian church, and you can find mention of that in Romans 16, verse 13. But again, let's not get distracted. They bring Jesus outside the city walls to a place which is called the place of the skull. No doubt that's where the Romans would crucify their victims, and no doubt it smelled of blood and death. There they offered him something that might numb the pain that was coming, but he deliberately refused it. He knew that he must suffer fully the pain of the cross. And then without any fanfare, Mark simply adds, and they crucified him. You know, some of us reading this passage might have wanted a little more information. What exactly was involved in this? Since the sufferings of Jesus are intended for our benefit, shouldn't we know more about how he suffered at this point? We should, however, remember that the ancient readers of the gospel all would have witnessed crucifixions, and so one little sentence would have invoked in them exactly what was implied here. And since in our day none of us have witnessed the same event, we need some explanation. So, so let's take the time and do just that. Let's understand what it means to say that one line, and they crucified him. 
From Luke and John, we know that the Romans drove nails into his hands and feet. In the Greek language, the word hand can refer to the entire arm. So if you think about it, a nail driven through the hand as we think of a hand would quickly have torn out, but a nail that was driven into the area right above the wrists would hold a victim fast, as the bone itself would prevent it from being dislodged. See, in this way, it would crush the median nerve, sending pain very much like hitting your funny bone with a hammer. Sheer pain would drive through the body. And normally, the victims were laying down on a cross as, as the nails were attached. And when the victim was raised and the cross dropped into the hole, it often popped out the shoulder joints in the process. Then the victims were so nailed to the cross that breathing would be extremely difficult as the chest cavity would have to be pulled upward and outward just in order to take a breath. And so when the longing for breath became unbearable, the victim would have to push himself with his feet, releasing weight from his arms in order not to suffocate. Since nails were holding his feet, the pressure on the nails in the feet and the pressure on the elbows would make every breath to be an ordeal. That and the fact that he had been so beaten means that he would scrape his badly mangled back against the cross as he struggled to breathe. Muscle cramps, constant flexing, unrelenting searing pain without even a moment of relief would be the experience of people being crucified. You know, it has rightly been said that crucifixion is the cruelest form of capital punishment. People hanging there were literally being tortured to death. And that's why when the two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus had not yet died, the Romans simply took sledgehammers and broke their legs, and thus they would no longer be able to lift their bodies to breathe, and they would immediately suffocate. But Jesus by then was already dead, probably because of the very severe scourging that he had endured. Just how long did Jesus actually hang on the cross? Well, according to Mark's gospel, he endured this torment from the third hour, which in our way of reckoning would be about nine o'clock in the morning, until his death at the ninth hour, which would be about three in the afternoon. And so he was ceaselessly tortured until he died, and that process continued unrelentingly for some six hours. Now, I hate to pass over this issue too quickly. The fact that Jesus spoke, according to John, seven times while on the cross, words of comfort to his mother, instructions to John, crying out that he was thirsty, enduring the insults from the Pharisees who were mocking him ceaselessly, while well, all of that is truly remarkable. You know, I once knew a violent, schizophrenic young man, and as his mother was dying in the hospital, he was in the room and he was shouting insults at her, and those were the last words she heard before she died. It's, it's astonishing and it's awful. But Jesus suffered such blinding pain, and as he was dying, he heard the astonishing insults not from mentally ill men, but from self-righteous religious men who in their hatred and in their black hearts couldn't contain themselves and simply let their insults fly at him. Now, even though I have said that we should not move too quickly from the scene of the physical sufferings of our Lord, starting with his humiliation at the six trials through the night, the severe beatings, the constant insults and mocking, crowd frenzy, mob violence, and finally ending up on the cross, even so, we fail to understand the cross if we do not see the deeper elements that are there. I want to add three more elements to the suffering of Christ that we must not pass over. 
Beyond the physical suffering is first the psychological suffering of being the sin-bearer for our sins, and, and then second is the suffering that came when his own heavenly Father abandoned him on the cross, and then finally third, and, and perhaps most important, is the suffering of bearing up under the righteous anger of God. Now, these are the issues, and I'll deal with these in my last message on the sufferings of Jesus. See, these last issues are the greatest cause of his suffering, and, and they speak of the atonement found in the cross. That means what I've described up to this point is but a small offering of the totality of his agony. But remember, I began by saying that for the Apostle Paul, whenever he was called upon to suffer, he remembered the sufferings of Christ, knowing that Christ was intimately aware of what he suffered. See, Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, Paul is saying that the entire world system in all its glory, that is, all of its wonders and attractions, all of this can't be compared with the beauty, yes, I said the beauty, that's found in the sufferings of Jesus. Because Paul has familiarized himself with Christ's sufferings, he has found nothing in the world to attract himself to the world. Rather, he has found in the cross something that is of infinite wonder. And that's why when we think of the sufferings of Jesus, we are attracted to the glory of God. We find the great, great love of our Father for us in the sufferings of his Son. See, that's why Easter is an important time of the year for us. It reminds us afresh that we have seen an outpouring of love unlike any other love we've ever experienced. John, I suppose as we uh, talk about these issues, we might see that what happened to Jesus was actually his ultimate defeat. And, and the world might look at it that way, but we don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that Paul in Galatians will say, I, I would glory in nothing other than this, tells us that all of the wisdom of the world has been turned onto its head. The greatest of all victories was accomplished when Christ deliberately, willingly suffered this way. I mean, that's the account. There was no other way to bring us salvation than through this marvelous suffering of Jesus. That's the story. Thanks, John. And remember to join us next week for the conclusion of this series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series, 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.